When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Hello. It's a pleasure to see you, Walker. Here I am, as I am, bathed in shame. You should be bathed in shame. This was a pathetic week for you. It was, I'm, it, I'm offended as a, as a human to be in the same, you know, horrendi specii as you. It's, it's painful. Oh, wow. He's subjecting me to the Latin. I've really done wrong. Just for some context, listeners, this is a, bo- a podcast about board games, and normally we review board games, and normally we pick in advance what games we're going to review, rather than having to scramble to make up some past distance, because we were intending to review a different game this week, except I appear to have lost it. I'm, so if, uh, if anyone in the Kingston, New England, or upstate New York area has stumbled across a purple box that says Pox Palmer 2nd Edition, open brackets, Mark is a forgetful loser who can't keep track of his own personal possessions, close brackets, please send us an email. This being said, is this the first game that you've actually lost? Like, do you remember ever, like, losing a game before? No. I have neglected to update my collection, and then a couple years after a trade... Uh, you know, realized that I didn't have it. Then I remembered that it was gone in a trade, and then I updated my collection then. But that's just merely forgetting that I had or didn't have a game. This is a question of my scouring everything and not being able to find it. Never mind losing pieces. I don't even remember losing a piece. I remember getting games that had the wrong pieces or missing pieces, but I can't even remember losing a piece, never mind losing a whole game. That it's was, true. That's quite a feat. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. It's painful. And the less said about it, the better. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And our feature game this week is not Pax Palmer, because who knows where that is. Instead, we're going to talk about Pax Renaissance, which Ooh. in my estimation is a step up, but we'll see how, how we feel about that at the end of the day. So with that in mind, uh, let's talk about the games we played last week. For me, last week was an excellent game for uh, an excellent week for miniatures gaming. I got to play Infinity. I got to teach someone how to play uh, play that. I got to play a game of Gaslands, which was wonderful. I got to try a new miniatures rule set, which we'll talk about in a second. But just as a sort of coda or addendum to our discussion last time about miniatures gaming, my, my recent game of Gaslands was just a sort of highlight of some of the weird cultural elements of miniatures gaming. One of them is, and I relayed this on Twitter, we're in an interstitial period. The second edition rules for Gaslands have been more or less finalized in that, they, you know, there's a published version that, that maybe we'll get our hands on soon. 
and I have access to the beta rules, and so I know there have been a number of changes. So preparing for a game of Gaslands introduces a weird cognitive dissonance for me. Should I take advantage of the things that I know have been nerfed, or should I play like a reasonable person? I, I call this the uh, douchebag or sucker conundrum. I can either play like a douchebag and just lean into the exploits, or I can feel like a sucker and play quote-unquote more fairly. I opted for the latter. I decided to play like a sucker. I didn't launch a whole bunch of buggies with rockets. I didn't have rockets at all, in point of fact. And it really, the other element of culture that it really highlighted was the gentleman who run, quote unquote, runs a lot of the local miniatures community in Kingston. We had eight people down for Gaslands. It was wonderful. And he says, okay, here are the rules modifications we're going to be playing under this week. We're not going to do audience votes. We're not going to do this other thing. We're going to pay for things this way. And I'm like, I'm going to go set up my own table. And... <laughs> No, we needed two tables, and in part it was because the rules modifications tend to feed the local meta such as it is. It's a fascinating thing that happens very often in, in miniatures war games, right? A group decides that they don't like a certain set of rules, and then naturally they end up always favoring the same factions and tactics that thrive in an environment where those rules are gone. Long story short, for people who know anything about Gaslands, the locals here, some of the locals here don't like to play with audience votes, and they all play Miyazaki. And I cannot but notice that the two might have some influence on each other because the one weakness that Miyazaki has is audience votes. They don't generate a whole lot of audience votes. I like to play Warden, and they thrive on audience votes. So I was more than happy to play by the rules as published as they currently are. The other, the final thing that I'll note about uh, miniatures uh, wargaming culture that was really on display here was eight people to play Gaslands, one pen, namely the one that I have in my bag. So <laughs> they all knew that they were coming here to play Gaslands, and so there was a lot of pen passing going on. Anyway... I adore Gaslands. I'm very much looking forward to Gaslands Refueled, the second edition. And that was just a, a lovely little microcosm of a lot of those elements of tabletop miniatures culture, culture that we talked about last week. I got to get Space Hulk onto the table, one of my favorite games of all time. It gives that alien feel to it. You know, millions of aliens screaming down the hall while, you know, you know, machine gun casings fly everywhere and acidy parts, you know, explode and... and humans get ripped apart and flanks get lost and then there's nothing but silence that you know that space needs a wholesome family afternoon exactly silence and space is exactly what after all the screaming and bone cracking and you know like sort of like the blending and the crunching of the feasting the once emulsifying all, as yeah, well yeah once that's all done then you know it's back to the silence of which space should be and that <laughs> is space hulk it's a great game where you're playing, you know, Games Workshop, big Terminators. There's these giant, you know, hulks floating through space and they have, you know, ancient technology or information or something's on there that they really need to get at. But more often than not, these things are infested with crazy aliens. So they have to mow them down while, you know, they try to hold these positions and advance forward. It's a game that really keys down to... There's like a corner you have to get around. It's like the timing, right? It's all the crucial moment in the game where you have to move that guy around the corner and still get him on overwatch, which means you can shoot during your opponent's turn and, you know, pulling that off and getting the timing just right. And that's what how this game, it really highlighted how random it, it is, really, because it's all D6s, you know, you're rolling to shoot and, and you know, how games, you know, they've moved away to more no luck type play and, you know, playing a game back from you know 1984 really you know highlighted you know how they you know were a lot a lot more based on luck and rolling you know dice trying to get sixes and failing and getting frustrated while you know things happen that you know is all on the you know luck of the die roll i hear the remarks of a man who failed some key overwatch shots 
No, no, no. There's, it was all the the passing of the key Overwatch. Right? It's like how many sixes can they roll? Is the, is was the question? I see. This was a suicide mission, I assume, right? No, no. We we decided that there, oh. was, there was no possible way we we're going to play suicide mission. We we're going to you know go past that and and try something different for a change. Wow. But contrary to your gripes, you still enjoy. Oh, I still yeah. love it. It's still fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, they're just gene stealers. Make some more. Yeah, well, it's the way you have to do it. It's, you have to play both ways, right? You have to, you know, one player plays the Space Marine one time, and then you just quickly flip around because you've already got the map built. You always, you know, plan on playing two games. You flip sides and, they, you know, give the other guy a chance. And it's a great game. Space Hulk by Games Workshop. I tried a new miniatures rule set this week, actually, one I've been meaning to try for a while. It's called Horizon Wars by Roby Jenkins. This is also put up by Osprey Publishing. Osprey, who's put out a whole bunch of really interesting rule sets, including, of course, but not limited to Gaslands. And this is a combined arms science fiction type deal. You have vehicles, you have aircraft, you have mechs, and you have infantry. And the way they interact is actually really, really interesting. The rule set is super clean. The resolution is very, very clean, uh, clean, simple, and satisfying, and uh, somewhat novel for what it's worth. The way they use dice is is pretty cool. The army building is a bit strange, but once you wrap your head around it, it gives you a fair amount of texture. And the coolest thing about the army building, and this is what initially appealed uh, appealed to me, all the conventional forces, all the tanks, all the artillery pieces, all the infantry pieces, they have set stats that you can you can judge up a little bit with some special points. But the mechs and the aircraft, you build from scratch. You buy a mech for what, however many army points, and then it says, okay, here's some points. Just allocate them into uh, movement, attack, armor, and whatever special abilities you want to buy. Give them, you want to give them jump chats? Sure, fine, give them jump chats. An advanced computer? Fine, whatever. And so there's a lot of latitude in that sense. It was really, really, really cool. The scenario we played seemed a little dodgy in some ways, but we were playing one of the baby intro scenarios. The sort of default way to play is called an adventure, and that's an entire other separate set of rules. And hopefully that will be more satisfying because if the actual scenarios don't end up uh, more satisfying, sometimes all you have with a compelling rule set is just that. There's just the rule set. But if the scenarios don't really bring things to life, then there's nothing to do, really. I'm a little bit done with miniatures games where they're just have some forces and smash against each other. That doesn't really do it for me so much. So I'm hoping that with future experiences with Horizon Wars, I'm going to be able to see a little bit more of this stuff play out, see different type of army compositions, play around with new kinds of mechs. And it's a scale that I don't have a lot of material for, but, you know, terrain can work for anything. And I'm not going to use yogurt pots like the uh, like the author recommends. I'm a little bit past that, but most of my miniature is 28 mil. So it was very interesting. I look forward to trying it again. The author has a new supplement out for Horizon Wars with a whole bunch of new information, including transforming mechs with stuff that is very, very clearly Robotech or Macross with the serial numbers filed off. So, of course, I'm, I'm keen on that. Very interestingly, the author Roby Jenkins on Facebook said that if he sold enough copies of the expansion within a span, an arbitrary span of two weeks, which I think actually is expiring in the next couple of days, he was going to quit his job and design war games full time, which is a fascinating threat. I hope it. I hope he's able to. Well, I'm hope he's. I hope he's able to do whatever it is he wants to do. I don't know. That was... <laughs> unless, yeah, unless it was like a, an empty threat. Out of jest. Now he's like forced to quit his job. And right, I don't. I mean, I, I'm not going to presume to tell this guy how to live his life. But if that's what he wants to do, I hope he's able to make it happen. Very so right. that was Horizon Wars. Very keen to try it again. Very another very interesting rule set by Osprey Games. Got to play Time of Crisis. Time of Crisis is something actually that a number of listeners have been asking in the past couple weeks. It is a deck builder war game by GMT time of many emperors, third century of the Roman Empire, thereabouts, uh, theming. I 
Time of Crisis is a bit frustrating for me because there are elements about that I absolutely love, and then there's a whole bunch of ways in which it disappoints. The things that I like about it are the way that the deck building interacts with your map presence, and how there are three different colors, and you play cards to generate points of these three different colors that let you do either political actions or social actions or military actions. That part is great. I love it. You also don't ever shuffle your hand, but unlike Aeon's End, the less said about that the better, you just pick what your hand is going to be every round from your available cards, which is which is great. It's marvelous. You get to set up your own combos. The part that is disappointing is all the ways in which it doesn't address a lot of the traditional problems in dudes on a map games or multiplayer conflict games. There's a rich get richer problem, a huge rich get richer problem, because the more territory you have, the better cards you buy. So that's a massive issue in deck builders and in military games generally. There's a king of the hill problem. There's a bash the leader problem. There's an A and B fight so C wins problem. You know, all, all the standard kind of things that you might expect in a multiplayer conflict game that hasn't thought carefully about these kinds of issues. And so most of the time when I'm playing, I find that my enjoyment of those bits that are cool are completely undercut by everything else. And on top of that, the final insult, the downtime is horrendous. So it's a design I like in a lot of ways, but I wish the other bits had been brought up to snuff and were as good. So that's my experience with Time of Crisis. GMT game, that is. I bet you it's super colorful, right? The color palette is... is, is stands right out and you know makes you want to play it looks great on the table i take it as a very very bad sign that we're about a fifth of the way into the recording and i'm already sick to death of your complaints oh wow so that's 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 a new record it's gonna be a long day it's gonna be a very long day rough got to play a game called qe which means quantitative easing which is a game that takes place in 2008 and you are a central bank and you're basically bailing out industries and if that theme wasn't hilarious enough, the best part is this is a bidding game where currency is unlimited. You can bid whatever you want. You want to bid two on that tile? Fine. You want to bid 200000 on that tile? Also fine. You want to bid $2 trillion on that tile? Go to town. The trick is that it's a blind bidding game where only the auctioneer and the player who won the bid knows how much was bid for that thing. And so what to what extent there's hyperinflation going on, you're not entirely sure. You have some idea. And, you know, the scale is some bids are open. The auctioneer's bid is always open. So you have some notion of what people are bidding, but not a, not a great idea. And here's the kicker. At the end of the game, whoever has spent the most money automatically loses. They Their their economy tumbles into hyperinflation. They lose. It is honestly the best blind bidding game I've ever played insofar as it's just a pure economic auction bidding game. But the fact that nobody knows what's going on and you're desperately trying to intuit what the economy looks like is fabulous. And since you don't have to worry about the economy in the actual playing of the game, it's not a question of, I don't know how what the money supply looks like, so I have no idea how to take my turn. It's more about how much risk do you want to take. And that part really, really sells it. It was great. It was quick. There were moments of delicious laughter, which is unusual for contexts where it's a blind bidding game and it's you know relatively standard scoring. The scoring is more or less what you would expect from a roll and write. You know, it's like so many of this category, so many of this other category, whatever. But it's actually, you know a game, unlike Roland Wright's. So QE was great. I look forward to trying it some more. Everyone at the table had a great time, and the Japanese economy managed not to fall into hyperinflation. It, it sounds fantastic, because it's, it's just going to inflate itself, right? Because people that don't bid enough, they have no idea how much they lost by, so, you know, they're slowly going to go up, yes. and then they're just going to, like, just lose it and say, okay, enough, I need to get this whatever, and they're just going to 
one hundred percent. It just goes so high. So Watching fast. people lose it. their nerve, both because they start overbidding and because now they start underbidding, is marvelous. It's a game of nerve. You're playing chicken with your economy, which is so thematic and so satisfying. I remember what specifically happened. I didn't win the game we played, but the first bid that I made was regarded by many, well, specifically the auctioneer, as crazy ridiculous. I think it was twenty-seven billion. We were we were all bidding in billions. The initial auctioneer said, "Let's just let's just say that everything's in billions." I bid twelve billion for this thing, and I looked at it and said, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm willing to bid twenty and they thought that was ridiculous they're like whoa fine and by the end of the game things were going for 60 or 70 billion dollars it was it was really good i look forward to showing it to you actually if if you're uh, if you're that intrigued i am another play of lords of hellas with the dark ages expansion specifically this time we just swapped out all the gods minor update Still awesome. Just changing the gods changes so much and with no rules overhead. And I was able to fit everything into one box, which makes me feel like some kind of superhero all by itself. You know, just ditch the insert. And it's a new fancy box, even. It's a new fancy box. It's slightly bigger. I got to ditch all the inserts and I, I, I actually put hole punches in a plastic tray and then tied ribbons. So now you can just lift everything out and then get the... Bo- oh, I feel, I feel super artsy well, and crafty. I should I should post it to my Instagram with a special filter or something. Ooh. Is filter a thing that you it use is. on Insta? Okay, okay, I, I didn't know. So, see, so I was just guessing. So, probably more to follow once I try some of the more substantial elements, like you know, gods with their own special rules, or the fifth player expansion, or other stuff. But just honestly, with just adding more variety into the box, it Lords of Hellas is continuing to amaze, and so I'm very, very pleased with what's going on. I still don't like the publisher, but I still really, really like how Lords of Hellas is developing. Finally got to play a game called Getaway Driver. Getaway Driver is a two-player, heavily asymmetric tile-laying game where one player is playing as a criminal trying to evade the police, and the other player is playing the police trying to capture the criminal. And it's extremely asymmetric because the driver has all these stunts that they can pull in order to try to create hazards, which will then cause cop cars to crash and various pursuit vehicles to, to get destroyed. But they don't have a notion of where they're going. It's the person who's who's playing the police also kind of sort of plays the city. They're the ones placing the tiles face down. And so the driver just has to guess where they should be going, which is an interesting element of tension. And I enjoyed Getaway Driver. But the problem is, this is actually pointed out to me by the, the person I was playing with. And he's absolutely right. It's very similar to Claustrophobia. Because it's heavily asymmetric, one side places all the tiles and has a horde of disposable individuals to chase down, on the other hand, somebody who has to take these risks to place new tiles and starts out as strong as they're ever going to be and gets weaker over the course of the game. And that fundamental dynamic is very evocative of claustrophobia. It's basically the same uh, the same sort of overall arc of tension about what's going on. And Getaway Driver was nice, and it was clever, and it was cute, but it wasn't substantially faster than claustrophobia, and it wasn't substantially simpler than claustrophobia e- either. So, I mean, I can absolutely recommend it for people who are not inclined to, to, to get claustrophobia and are interested in a sort of quick, confrontational, heavily asymmetric two-player game. But as it is, I don't really think it has a, a place in my collection, speaking personally. And the balance is probably a little bit better in Getaway Driver, honestly. We played, uh, of the games that I've played, it's always been close compared to claustrophobia, where a lot of the scenarios are unbalanced by design. So if that's a high priority or and or if the theme appeals to you, it's very small, very cute, and, and very pleasant. But again, we both adore claustrophobia, so that's probably what's, what, what's going to stay there. And that was Getaway Driver, designed by Jeff Beck and Uproarious Games. And so those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So first off, some very, very sad news. Uh, a titan of the industry has passed. Uh, Richard H. Berg, famed wargame designer, not to be confused with Richard Borg, other wargame designer, uh, has passed away. 
Richard Berg has had a very long, very, very, very productive career, and he's produced some of the, truly some of the epic-making games in the historical wargame genre. He helped design Successors, which is my favorite wargame of all time. He's done, I mean, honestly, I could spend the entire podcast just listing seminal games he's made, but some of of my favorites are SPQR, Pax Romana, Men of Iron, the Great Battles of History series. He's just been, he's put out some really, really impressive games. He has an indelible style, an indelible design style, and it wasn't everybody's taste, and sometimes it puts some crummy rules at the expense even of historicity, but you cannot deny that he's had an impressive career, and even if you don't like any of his games, this is a monumental loss to the hobby just because of the influence that he's had on so many other game designers. So, rest in peace, Richard Berg. I just think maybe we should have that because <laughs> not talking about games makes it. Well, yeah, we, look, it, it's the nature. It's the nature of the beast. Some, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rarely we talk about something serious. True, true. So on to a board game. <laughs> I only have I only have one board game that to tweak my interest. I had tons of news last week, but the last minute they announced another Spyfall game coming out. I love Spyfall. It always brings laughs and a good time to the table. It's always interesting, so they're going to be doing some sort of time-traveling Spyfall. It's going to be available at Gen Con only for now and won't be out till September. So more Spyfall, the better. Honestly, I don't really like Spyfall all that much, but this new version actually piques my interest because it's less about locations and more about history. And uh, I, so when Where in the World in Carmen San Diego did Where in Time is Carmen San Diego, that was the one I liked. And I think it will probably be easier to guess because, you know, guessing whether you're at the airport or a Ren fair doesn't really hold much appeal to me. But trying to guess what period of time people are in, which I assume is how the new Spyfall is going to work. We'll find out. We'll find out. Well, that part is potentially interesting to me. So I, I am kind of curious about this new Spyfall. Finally, just a bit of a note. Uh, I don't know if you've been following this, Walker. Have you heard any of the noise about uh, Golden Bell and un- and Unbroken? No. Oh man, it's a tragic comedy that's in, that's unfolding. So Golden Bell is a fulfillment company, and there've been there've been there's actually been some news lately about how Ship Naked has been acquired by Fun Again Logistics, and so uh, for people who are uh, dubious of the uh, of, of Ship Naked, it's going to be under new ownership soon. But Golden Bell is doing the fulfillment for a Kickstarter project called Unbroken, and the designer for Unbroken has nothing to do with it. He's basically handed over everything to, to Golden Bell. At least that's the claim. That's that that's what we have available to us. As per usual, and this is hardly Golden Bell's fault, necessarily, there was not enough money set aside for shipping. Happens all the time. And sometimes companies really take a bath on this. People have folded as a result of this. Golden Bell's solution was to try to ship everything media mail. And I don't know if you know anything about American postal policy, but media mail is for books, and pretty much that's it. And they're definitely not for board games. Golden Bell swore up and down, oh, we consulted postmasters, and it was totally... It's not legit. It's not It's not acceptable. So they're getting a whole bunch of packages returned, and they're on the hook for that, and... There have been complaints, and so that's the whole thing. Made worse, though, is Golden Bell's attitude of uh, blaming the backers. They've basically threatened legal action against anyone that's complained about the use of media mail in this case because, you know, media mail is a thing, and it's very important for shipping books and sometimes music and other media out to various people. And then there was the whole issue about them sending multiple copies to people who only ordered one. Typically, and this has happened to me before, I've, at least three or four times over the course of Kickstarters and just retail sales, I've had things sent to me that I didn't order or duplicates or whatever. The legal standard in both Canada and the U.S. is if someone sends you something by accident, it's yours and you get to keep it. If you're polite, you can say, send me shipping and I'll send it back to you, but you're under no obligation to do that. Uh, Golden Bell has been telling people that 
oh, we accidentally sent you a new copy. Maybe what you should do is just buy it from us and give it to a friend. Uh, here's a link to where you can send us PayPal money. Or <laughs> if you'd like to drop it off to, to us at Gen Con, that'd be swell too. We're at booth whatever. Or if you'd like to send it back to us, uh, you know, let us know and we'll get the address. But no mention of payment or no mention of, of sending shipping and handling. And once again, they've threatened legal action against people who are saying, well, I've got mine, Jack. It's my, it's your problem, not mine. Exactly. That's ridiculous. Anyway, there, I could go on for a long time about all the stories about Golden Bell. I can't confirm any of these firsthand, but there are lots of Reddit threads. And if you enjoy the sort of train wreck of... Uh, terrible things happening as a sort of a, 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 a weird masochistic sort of thrill. I encourage you to go look, look into reading more about this ongoing uh, Golden Bell uh, disaster. I feel bad for everyone, quite frankly, to be entirely honest. I think Golden Bell has acted somewhat uncharitably, to say the least. But, you know, they're going to be losing a lot of money. The designer has had his project tainted by this whole thing, and he had nothing to do with it. The backers, a lot of them are left left out to dry. A lot of them don't have their games because they were sent in duplicates or triplicates to other people, and they've been bounced from media mail or what have you. It's a disaster, but it's an illustrative disaster. And so, and largely for that reason, I find it interesting. So that's what's going on with Golden Bell and Unbroken. Crazy. Yeah. And the auction, we have our, our So Very Wrong About Game auction. It's going on on Board Game Geek. If you pass around the link, that would be great. It's going wonderfully. I want to thank everyone for their bids and for, you know, making sure everyone knows about it. And the links are on Facebook and in our Board Game Guild. And that is the news and why it does not matter. Now on to our feature game of the week, which is PAX Renaissance. Mark, where is this this PAX game fall into a timeline. So there was a game called Lords of the Sierra Madre, which was published by Sierra Madre, funnily enough. And as a sort of a spin on it, they uh, published a game in 2012 called PAX Porfiriana, which was named after the period of time roughly following the period of the game. It takes place in Mexico and parts of the southern United States right around the turn of the 20th century. And this was designed by Matt Eklund and Phil Eklund. Phil, Phil Eklund, the uh, head of Sierra Madre Games, Matt Eklund, his son, and another designer by the name of Jim Gutt. And it turned what was a four-hour sprawling random piece of nonsense into a tableau builder that was infinitely shorter, but still full of lots of rules and lots of historical bits of chrome and, and so forth. And this fundamental system, this PAX system, has been redone several times. There's been PAX Palmer, which is about the so-called great game in Afghanistan. Uh, there's been PAX Renaissance, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And then following that, there's been PAX Emancipation. And thereafter, there's going to be a game called PAX Transhumanity, which is going to be released uh, sometime in the near future, which is about transhumanism and the near future. PAX Emancipation is about the process by which Cole Worley uh, got to publish his games without the racist essays of Phil Eklund. And, oh, wait, no, no, no. Sorry. It's, it's not about the emancipation of Cole Worley. It's about the ending of the, 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 the slave trade. So that's the overall uh, picture of where it fits in the timeline. Walker, why don't you give us an incredibly unhelpful summary about what one does in Pax Renaissance, and I will try not to get angry. Well, I've got several here. In Pax, in Pax Ren, which is what it's you know what people call it, Pax Ren, you want to keep a bowl or a bucket or like Vassal handy, so when your brain leaks out of your ear, you'll be able to catch that in hopes you might be able to return it to its place of origin. What you're actually doing is you're stumbling around, trying to figure out some sort of stretch. Oop, no, wait, too late, you've already won. Okay, no, sorry, that's being silly. In Pax Renaissance... You know what you're doing, and everyone knows what you're doing, 
and they're watching very closely, and then they all plot. They all plot to stop you, and then the instigator of this plot of your demise claims victory. That's usually what happens. Or <laughs> you need to play referee all game to make sure no one wins and that you have no fun. All right. Pax Renaissance is a card game that is a tableau builder. You have to know all the victory conditions. There's a small deck of victory conditions that's four cards, four different victory conditions. And right from the beginning, you have to start towards one of them or else you're going not to win because it's not a very long game. And you have to do it sort of under the radar so no one knows exactly which victory condition you're going for. Like all the other PAX games, it's got a line of cards that you're going to be buying off the tableau and the longer the further you go along the line the more you have to pay so you have to sort of you know gauge your your uh, strategy to get the right cards at the right price you also have to watch what other players are doing because you have to be able to stop them from you know from them winning right because there's very distinct victory conditions and there's very distinct ways in order to stop other people from winning so you got to make sure you see what they're doing and then you have to keep a good balance in your tableau you have to make sure you have enough money so in a single turn, you want to be able to claim a comet. There's comet cards that come near the end of the game, which lets you choose one of these victory conditions and flip it up. And then it immediately becomes obtainable. And then you have to use one of your two actions to say, I claim victory, and then you win the game. But you want to be able to time it, engage it, so you can do both of those things in the same turn. Take the comet, take the victory. Otherwise, more than likely, you're going to get stopped. And that is Pax Ren. Okay, so let me address some of your less accurate characterizations of the game, first of all. Pact Renaissance is absolutely daunting. It is a very daunting game in terms of the rules overhead and in terms of figuring out how all the systems work, much less how the systems work together. Now, some of that is the rulebook. The rulebook is, and more on the non-rules elements of the rulebook later, because I'm going to give a brief, a very brief set of complaints about Phil, Phil Eklund. But the rulebook is not as helpful as it could be, I think, both in terms of structure and in terms of how it buries a lot of important rules in the glossary. It's also on a quick note here, and the fact that it's 30 pages long in a game that could take only 45 minutes or less. Well, if anything, I think actually the rulebook is too small. I think the rulebook would be clearer if it were bigger. We're talking about a small booklet in very small font, yes. But in terms of how complex it is, and in terms of, you know, a lot of medium Euro games have rule books that are that long or longer, honestly, considering that it also includes, you know, the component summary and setup instructions and so forth. I am sure we could go up in your collection right now and find literally dozens of games that are half as complicated with rule books just as long. So I don't think the length of the rule book is at all the problem. It's not, it's not the problem, but it's a problem. <laughs> Look, and, at this point, we're quibbling. I, and yes, and, and the rulebook for Pax Ren has lots of racist footnotes and, and lots of weird and, essays. And the, and, and, and the font is so small, you can barely read it. Yes, the rulebook is daunting. Fair enough. In terms of game complexity, though, it's not just length for the sake of length. It is an incredibly right. complicated game with lots of different subsystems. And you're absolutely right, and this is something I've commented before. If you don't have a good sense of what the victory conditions are, if you can't in, be able to with at least some effort, internalize who might be going for what, the game is going to feel entirely arbitrary. 
even when you have internalized the four victory conditions. And in fairness, three of the four victory conditions are relatively straightforward. The fourth one's a bit weird, and whoever's explaining the game, if they're doing a good job, is just going to have to say, look, you're gonna ha- we're going to have to return back to this and warn people, okay, this religion is about to become ascendant and so forth, because it's the religious victory that sticks out a bit in Paxaran. Without that, it's going to feel entirely arbitrary. Even with that, your first few times is going to feel very arbitrary. Not necessarily random. I, I, I would dispute random because everything is perfect information and everything is, is somewhat deliberate. When everyone grabs a card, if you're able to think the next couple steps ahead, you know what that card is going to do. But again, for that, you have to internalize the systems and that takes a while and it's daunting. Absolutely. There's also no good instructional videos online for it, for what it's worth. Some people have asked me, well, you know, in preparation for this, can I watch a good video? It's like, I don't know of any. Broadly speaking, the videos that I've seen are are, are relatively well done, but they tend to be like, here's an exhaustive explanation of all the simple actions and all the complicated stuff I'm not going to talk about at all. Well, buying and playing cards, which is most of what you do in PAX Renaissance, is very simple, extremely simple mechanically. It's just all those follow-on effects, the weird ops, the one-shots and stuff, the stuff that they don't get into detail about, that's where most of the complexity lies. All right, we've done some bad stuff. Let's go on some some stuff that I think is good. Multiple paths to victory. We just talked about those. We love multiple paths to victory. We don't like, you know, honing in on just one. And they're all relatively the same. Not not the same as in as in what you have to do, but I mean they're balanced. Right. And broadly and there's they're subject again to new players to rough heuristics you want more concessions you want more uh prestige icons you want more kings in your tableau you want more republics in your tableau things like that and really i've been thinking about it lately why is it that so many contemporary heavier euro games or even medium weight euro games don't really do anything for me or the heavier concepts that don't do anything for me for me Heavy games where scoring allows for a lot of different kinds of opportunities and a variety of approaches without getting cumbersome victory conditions, that's really where I like heavier games to be. And I'm thinking of games like Successors, rest in peace Richard Berg, Cerebria, Demacher, Pax Renaissance, all of these games allow you lots of different things to do without getting bogged down in a whole bunch of conditionals. Again, with the exception of the Religious Victory. The Religious Victory in Pax Renaissance is a little bit more like you might find in other games that I like less, like like coin games or a lot of the other uh, crunchier Euros of late, where it's like, well, the victory condition is if A obtains, then if you have more B than your next opponent, then you compare your value in C, etc., etc., etc. And that, that, that just doesn't well, do anything to me. Well, this one, I, I don't think it's that clear. Let's, let's, let's go over a couple of them. One of sure. them is have more kings. Two more kings. Kings and no, just kings. and republics, isn't it? Or does is it just have two more just kings? Two more kings. Two more kings. Republics is a different one. And I feel as though how you get kings is not as simple as it seems. So, That's true, right? And then let's go to the one and the other one I just talked about: concessions. It's very easy on how to get rid of concessions, but how to get concessions is another. You know, it's you know part of getting the kings and you know these other cards that are you know very rare were very rarely come up so it's very hard to go you know what i mean to like to focus down on a strategy and you've already said the religious one is is complicated and then the last one that renaissance we is is more republics is the, and two more law and, and then yeah turning things into a republic and that's yet another whole you know that's fair canvas so they're not as clear well the victory conditions themselves are clear how to move towards them is not 
exactly perfectly clear. That's fair. It all falls under the, 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 the broad, rough, messy aegis of regime changes, which can occur through many, many different ways. It does, however, one thing I will point out, even for new players, if you know what you're looking for, you can eyeball other people's tableaus. You can look at the map, you can look at what cards out in front of you and say, oh, okay, this person's got one law, so many concessions and no republics. You know, you can that part that at part, least yes. is relatively transparent, whereas you don't have to, and even simple games, sometimes you have to look at the map and say, okay, who's winning? Who's doing what? I don't know. Okay, I guess I'll just hit someone randomly. Like we, I've complained about this all the time. If you have a mixture of open and hidden scoring, we have to sit down and do the math every time you need to penalize somebody. Here, at least, you know, when there's aggression, when there's targeted aggression, when you need to stop the leader, you know exactly what's going on. Oh, I need to kill one of this guy's concessions. I guess I'll go move this pirate. You know, something like that. So at that point, you're absolutely right. Sometimes I, I, I'm probably oversimplifying when I talk about how the, the broader strategic vision is accessible. But at the very least, when you boil down into what people have, that part is transparent. All right, next point. And I think I feel as though it has a very historical feel to it. The way the map is laid out, the way the cards look, the way the cards interact with each other, just the general way the game moves, I think it has a nice historical feel to it. It does have a very nice historical feel. It's got a lot of little interesting bits of texture and detail and the historical notes on all the cards. I have a couple historical quivers, quibbles. The fact that it's Portugal rather than the Kingdom of Castilla. The fact that they call it Constantinople, but put but stuff it full of Muslim knights and rooks. Why not just call it Istanbul? Yes, the game theoretically starts in 1450, a whole three years before Constantinople fell, but that, that part is just weird. I have no idea why they did that way. I've tried to read about it. Uh, the fact that it's called the Mamluk Sultanate, even though that ended in 1517, I think. Anyway, uh, so yeah, there are minor quibbles, but mostly what we're talking about is a broad scope sweep of, of what the Renaissance looked like. And in that sense, I think you get uh, a fair bit of the flavor. Should I complain about racism now or later? Sure. This is a good segue into it for sure. Yeah. So here's the thing. I released an entire editorial about Phil Eklund a few months ago for Patreon Swaggers. But the theme is dodgy. So first of all, the theme is that you're all Western bankers saving the world through capital. That part is nonsense. It just doesn't make any economic or historical sense. So instead, it makes far more sense to just imagine yourself as the traditional assortment of, you know, powers behind the throne pulling strings in the Renaissance. You know, some of them, of course, being financiers, but some of them being other people. So that, you know, that part's weird, but fine. But there's a lot of racist nonsense in the rulebook. Phil Eklund starts out with this paradigm whereby... There are these things called Western ideas, freedom, reason, science, and then there's these things called Eastern ideas, which are about repression and inward looking and, and, and woo-woo mysticism, which is just nonsense. It's really stupid, and he even knows that it's stupid. He talks about how Luther was fundamentally an Eastern thinker. Martin Luther of the 95 Theses. Okay, fascinating. If he was fundamentally an Eastern thinker, why do you have these Western and Eastern categories the way that it was? If Avicenna was fundamentally a Western thinker, why do we have this East-West? economy to begin with. Geographical? Fine. Divvy things up geographically? Fine. That part is okay in the game, whatever. You just draw a line and say everything east of this is east. But the racist crap in the rulebook is just terrible and ahistorical and misguided. It's just objectivist nonsense and Aristotelian exalting craziness. It's just really bad. It infects the game a little bit. A little bit. There's this notion of laws. Some cards have law prestige, and what this represents, according to the Eklund paradigm, is property rights. 
that itself is already a problematic notion of what constitutes law or rule of law. But on top of that, if you're looking for law prestige, you can know that you're going to find a lot more of it in the Western deck than in the Eastern deck. Maybe that part's historically accurate, maybe it's not. But all in all, it, it is one of the ways in which the, the, the weird ideology of the designer kind of infects the design. All of that having been said, and again, I said this in the editorial, you're not going to find a much more cosmopolitan game published in the West about the Renaissance than in Pax Ren. Typically, when you have a game about the Renaissance, it's the Western Mediterranean, right? And it stops at Germany, nothing east of that. Here, at least, you do get to see things like the Kizilbosch, like, uh, you know, the, the the possible jihad in Hungary and the you know various things in the Hungarian king to begin with and the, uh, the, the, the Eastern Roman Empire and things like that. So, you know, even if the East deck is anemic in comparison to the West deck and you see almost all of it in a four-player game, at least you get a far more broadly cosmopolitan sweep in Pax Ren than you're going to see in almost any other game about the Renaissance. So to, just to give credit where credit is due. Rant over. There you go. Well, I'm going to throw in a bad point in here because it, it's fitting. And I think in a lot of games, we look for a theme to make the experience more enjoyable or, you know, interesting. I feel in this game, the theme actually gets in the way. Like, it, like the, the terminology they use and, and the way they, you know, in, infuse it into the game, I think it just holds the game back. And the way, it, you know, you're flipping cards back and forth and, and, and the words they use, I really think that's the first time I've ever noticed a theme getting in the way of enjoying a game. Could you give me a specific example? Just like the, the Republic part, you know, switching over, like, you know, making Republics or just stuff like that. I hear you that despite the fact that you get a great, broad scope of history and you get to see cards that are titled with things like Martin Luther and Janissaries and things like that. At the end of the day, it's not going to serve as a good explanation for what the card is going to do most of the time. Sometimes you get, a, again, a broad scope. Like Cromwell is going to show up in England. Fine. But in terms of the nitty-gritty about how they work ops and things like that, the historical theme kind of vanishes. Yeah, and that, that's the other thing I was going to talk about is that all the all the instants and all the cards, like conspiracy and, and like all the wording they use in there, jihad and, you know, I mean, like so many different words that are historically accurate. But if they just, you know, word, if it was under a different theme, would have made the game a lot easier to follow and a lot and a lot better flow, I think. Yes. In my opinion. Well, that, that highlights the, the biggest area of rules grit, that there are a whole bunch of different types of conflicts, and they all work mechanically the same way, attackers and defenders, but each of them have different notions about who attacks and who defends. And yes, there's a chart at the back of the rulebook that will summarize all this, but it is super hard to internalize, and it can be super consequential. And I yes, I can imagine a version of the theming where, or indeed a game of a tighter scope, that would not be Pax Renaissance. But in a game with better theming or a tighter scope, you might use the theme as a way to help remember what all these various things do. All right, next point. Flow is very good. As in many Pax games, you get two actions and then you're done and the next person gets to go. And much like Scythe and other games that we enjoy, there's no rounds, there's no end of turn. It's just two actions and you're done. And around and around you go until someone wins. Not much more to say about that, I don't think. I think there's a great use of chess pieces in this game. They always refer to pawn, knight, bishop, rooks, and they even have the small chess pieces and they all their hierarchy all makes sense and the, all the symbols are on the cards and all the pieces and I think that really does that part of the game does help make more sense in the game. Other super petty quibble, knights and Pax Renaissance are more powerful than rooks. That also kind of bothers me. <laughs> I also uh, so full disclosure, we are reviewing a game that is out of print. 
so sue us. But it is going to be back in print probably next spring in a uh, deluxe version that includes the expansion and probably is going to have bigger pieces and maybe an actual board instead of cards. Anyway, all this is up for grabs. Uh, but what I'm really looking forward to and what I've seen some users do on BoardGameGeek is they make all the chess pieces look better because the knights are absolutely little knights. But the pawns are cubes, the rooks are, and the rooks are just cylinders. And that part's a little ugly. Game length. I think it, it's a great, it goes very quickly. It can be over before you even know it. And I think for the type of game it is, it's, it's, a, it's a good length. I think in terms of size of game, both in terms of the game box, it's got this lovely twee little box. I don't know why I find the tiny boxes for, for Sierra Madre games so adorable, but I do. And in terms of the game length itself, we regularly finish four-player games in an hour, which for a game of this depth and for this many moving parts is astounding. In terms of just sheer uh, quality of decision-making for, for game time, once you've got the system down, which is a huge caveat. I'm fully conscious of how huge a caveat that is. But once you've got the systems down, I am hard-pressed to imagine a better time-of-game-to-quality-of-decision-making ratio for, for many games out there. It is astounding in how much it covers in such a short period of time. Well, like with a, a person we played the last few games with, he's got a fairly large con- uh, uh, collection. He plays has been playing tons of games lately, and, he, and, his, and his comment was, this is the most complicated game he's ever played. I think he's exaggerating a bit, but uh, whatever. I think everyone's a liar. There you go. I think it... What's what's a good wording for it? I think it is... There are more complicated games, but they have... They sort of like a thread in them that sort of joins everything together that makes them easier to follow. This is a very disjointed, complicated game. I don't know if I'd say disjointed. I mean, if there, and this this point, again, I think highlights how our different experiences of Pax Renaissance. I again turn back to what we said about Cerebria, right? In Cerebria, it's a very complicated game. It's got a rulebook that actually I would wager is much, much longer than Pax Renaissance's rulebook, for example. And again, it's about can you keep the end goal in mind and recognize that all these mechanisms and systems are tools in your toolbox that you might or might not take advantage of to get to that simple, clear goal. And I, again, much, much rather prefer that kind of ratio than the kind of games where the end state or the the scoring conditions are weird and buried in exceptions and provisions. And, well, it depends on what's happening here. And you compare these five different variables at all times. And where what you're doing is, you know, narrowly defined and very, very simple and straightforward and repetitive. Give me a good toolbox to work with and interesting levers to pull and a clear goal, and that's the kind of heavy game that I like. And it is absolutely disjointed if you're not able to keep it all together, but given that the game is, uh, given that Pax Ren is sufficiently quick, and even in the context of your early games, interesting things will happen. It's like, hey, I just conquered the Ottoman Empire. Okay, I just became Pope. All right. And again, not big on historical detail, but very good in historical broad strokes. I do think that it is the kind of game that will reward giving that kind of effort. It certainly was with me. Look, my first few playings, I didn't see the appeal. Now, again, that I've internalized the systems, I honestly think that the quality of decision-making is very high and worth the investment. Tell me why I'm wrong. Oh, multiple reasons. Sure. We t- we covered a bunch. But anyway, let's... <laughs> let's. let's uh, do you have anything good that you want to quickly butt in before I we go over some bad points that we haven't already talked about? I think I've said my piece. 
All right, so this is a point that was made by somebody. It's not something that I that is huge to me, but anyway, the fact that the very little of the game state changes, right? That is <sighs> just a moment. Let me just let me just sort of because I had written this before he made his his statements today. So what I felt it is is it's it's not it's not the fact that the little changes that do happen are extremely important and controllable. It's the fact that it's like one piece gets removed here and, you know, another piece gets placed over here and that happens throughout the entire game. There's no like huge buildup and nothing belongs to anybody. It's all sort of neutral. So it, it's, it sort of seems like you have no control over what's on the board because nothing actually belongs to you and it doesn't really change terribly. I know exactly what you're saying is that each little change has huge ramifications, but you know, overall the course of the entire game, I think it's very little change in the, in the entire game setup. Okay. Here's, here's why I don't understand this specific criticism because a lot of your other criticisms, I, I, I more or less agree with just in terms of, you know, is it worth the investment? Is it worth putting through all this tremendous effort when there are lots of other games that are vastly more accessible? Let's compare this to Imperial. All right, we both love Imperial, right? Yes. And Imperial 2030. In Imperial, none of the pieces belong to you, so that part is at least constant. Here's what I'm going to say about happens in a game of Imperial. Sometimes India controls this part of the ocean. Sometimes China controls this part of the ocean. Sometimes one of your armies is going to move over here and put a flag over there, and sometimes that flag is going to be taken back next turn. And you just move around to Rondel, and people get money. And in terms of what actually changes in the game state, it's like sometimes China's controlled by this person, sometimes China's controlled by that person. Sometimes their armies are going this way, sometimes they're going that way. All of those same things happen in Pax Renaissance. Hungary is mine. I lead Hungary's armies to go conquer the Ottoman Empire. Oh, look, someone murdered my forces in Hungary, and now Hungary got taken over by somebody else, it doesn't and look, now they're being controlled by somebody else. But it doesn't look that way and doesn't feel that way. I know that's what, what the card says is happening, and I know... And I know that's maybe what you feel that's happening, but it doesn't feel that way on the board. It doesn't look like this army is sweeping down and conquering this land and holding it. It just feels as though a couple of these pieces were taken off and other pieces were placed. You know, I don't want to say that, you know. So this is this is purely a, a sort of a tactile feeling that you want, that, that you're getting across. Yes. Okay. I don't feel it, but I respect that you do. Fair enough. No, it's not. Like I said from the beginning of this, this, Own is, it, not, Walker. this is not something... That I particularly, but what I've heard. Stop other sandbagging, people, Walker. Who's this hypothetical person? You know, you're not quoting anybody. I'm this quote, is made I'm up. Huey. You're quoting your friend. Huey totally said this exact same thing about. I'm how quoting he didn't. my friend from oh. Canada. They go to a different high school. You oh, haven't met them. Geez, here we go. All right. This is another thing. We also talked with Huey before we even played the other game. If you're in a convention and you see this game set up on the board, I don't feel as though you'd have any urge to play this game. It does definitely does not have eye appeal. I'm broadly inclined to agree. If you if you started showing me the specific cards, though, it's like, oh, here's a game where it's got a card for the Janissaries and a card for the Kizilbash and a card for the Bashi Bazook and a card for Cromwell and a card from, you know, that part would start getting getting me excited, but not in terms of the overall presentation of things. The cute little box, though, would sell me. It's true. Here's a heavy game in this cute little box. I'm there. And we've already talked about ridiculous amount of rules load and... And you may not get a return because like you said, you have all of these tools in your toolbox. So there's a huge, vast amount of things you can do. And the things that you actually use in a game, you you, you might not use, you know, 55% of the rules. So, which, which is also a great challenge for the rules explainer, right? 
lots of different people approach explaining Pax Renaissance lots of different ways because you know for a fact that there are, as you say, all these tools and you're only going to use a subset of them. Do you explain all of them up front and accept the fact that this is going to be daunting? Or do you not explain all of them up front and then when you flip over a card say, oh, by the way, this card does this thing that you didn't even know was possible. Yeah. Both of these are problematic. Or what do you emphasize, right? Because, you know, because it is wide open. Like, you know, there's some things like sometimes, you know, you don't even engage half your east or west. But, you know, there's definitely heavy strategy and definitely heavy decision space in doing that. But like you said, it's daunting for the rules. Yeah, the the only bit of advice, and I've said this before, you have to emphasize the the victory conditions as much as possible so that people can feel they know what the game is pointing to, even if they don't have a solid grasp on how to get there. All right, we talked about these other things. Constant village, uh, vigilance. You have to know who's close to winning, you know, the four different ways because you're going to be able to stop them, even though you might not be even have a chance to do so. We played a four-player game where we knew one player was winning and three of us still had a turn and none of us could do anything to stop them from winning. That is because... So the specific instance was because, number one, I had made a gross error... And I'm, I'm willing to take full responsibility for that. I had flipped a card when I shouldn't have flipped a card. And I knew what I was doing. I knew the consequence of my actions. I just didn't look to see what the next consequence would that be. And it just so happened that the cards we needed weren't in the display. So, yeah, that happens sometimes. Gotcha. Just he he had spent the necessary turns preparing before building a tableau. And as it happened, the tools we needed to stop him weren't there. So, And that leads into my last thing is that. A lot of the time you feel as though you have no control over what's happening. It's like you're losing pieces on the board. You're losing, you know, your, the victory condition that you've decided to shoot for is quickly disappearing. And it was really under no fault of your own because you have no control of what's going on the board at any time. I think that's a gross exaggeration. What do you mean no control over? I just mean like if you're trying to put out concessions, you know, while the other player playing, there's no way you can defend your concessions. They're disappearing. There's no way, there's nothing you can do about it. And you can keep, you know, trying to cycle more out there. But if you're, you know, if you've bought a bunch of boats to make sure that you have the most boats and then you're, you know, desperately trying to get concessions out and people start hitting them, there's nothing you can do about that. Same thing, you know, with, you know, you know, where where units are or where money's disappearing just during your turn like we said because none of the pieces are yours or there's nothing you can do to defend certain things or influence the board if you plant your feet and decide that there's only one victory condition that you're going to shoot for absolutely if you plant your feet and decide the, the only way you're going to get money is a specific way then absolutely you can find yourself frustrated but cards are geographically limited and the card that says i can eat up your concessions around aragon after they've eaten up your concessions on Aragon, well then, that's that. And this is even setting aside the many ways that you could silence or kill or get rid of that card. You can just go somewhere else. And yeah, if you want to focus on the pieces of yours that get eaten, although apparently nothing really happens in the game, then you might get frustrated. But in a game like this, where there are multiple paths to victory, the key, the name of the game is to stay flexible. Very much like a game of Imperial. If you've decided in a game of Imperial that the way you're going to win is by investing in France. Yeah, and controlling the same thing. Over and controlling the same thing for the entire time. Someone's going to take it from you. It's like, okay, I have to go somewhere else now. And it's the same notion. Again, because you don't control the pieces on the board that are, uh, except for your concessions, if you're really devoted to that army in England and it goes away, well, you have to have a contingency. So I, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of how it can be superficially frustrating to have your pieces predated upon. But to say that you have no control over it and there's no recourse, I think, is an unfair exaggeration. Not that there's no recourse. It's just the fact that getting concessions out is difficult already. And then having them you know disappear is a huge hit. It can be, yes. 
And same thing with once you get a king finally in your tableau and he gets assassinated or removed or somehow, you know, taken away, it's also a huge hit because, you know, it took so long to build up to that point where you could, you know, get him to your side in the first place. Well, sometimes it was just a question yeah, of buying yeah, one card. It is, so. it is, it is. And it's also a thing of them buying one card to take it away. And the last point was it definitely rewards multiple plays. Absolutely. So I think I think what's fair to say is that I felt it was worth the effort to, you know, overcome the difficulties in the rulebook and overcome the, the superficially daunting elements of the system. And having gotten past the other side and... Most of the me- mechanisms of the game are second nature to me now. Not all of them, but most of them. And now I really think that it is a, a you know, the barrier between me and the quality of the decision making appears to be very, very low. If I hear you correctly, having gone through much of the same similar journey, you know, you've overcome a lot of the barriers and you know how a lot of the things work and you've manipulated all these things. You don't really want to keep going. You don't think that it was worth the effort. You thought that it was a, that it, that it was effectively a bad deal. Is that accurate? No, I, it's much like. Uh... Spirit Island or other games like that. I appreciate the rules. I appreciate the game, but it's just really not the type of game that I enjoy playing. Well, that's certainly fair. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>